0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. If you want to grab, grab your Bible or one close by and go ahead and turn there. Um, if you didn't bring one, it's okay. We've got Bibles under the seats around you. Um, or feel free to grab a phone or a tablet and find it. Uh, we'll be in Romans chapter 10. Uh, just a couple things. First of all, if you're a visitor with us and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself, um, welcome. I'm glad to see you here. My name is Jason Williams. I have the honor and privilege of being the lead pastor here. Um, I serve among a body of elders leading Solid Rock Church. Um, currently, there are four uh, elders leading with two in new elder candidacy. Um, we're, we're just right now in awe of all that God is doing uh, by way of blessing us in so many ways as a church. And, uh, and so just an honor to be with you, to open God's word with you this morning. Um, so there's a, a conviction we have about God's word here at Solid Rock, and that's, this, this is the conviction that uh, we read God's word, Most accurately, and we are most convicted by it when we read it in context, verse by verse in big blocks, rather than just pulling verses out uh, to meet our agendas or our needs. And so what what I mean by that is, so if we pull a verse out of context, it's pretty easy to pull a phrase into your own agenda, but when you read it in context... Right, The obvious stands out, and so we read God's Word more accurately when we read it that way. But we also know that we stand to be more convicted when we read it that way because we're not just drawn to our favorite verses or the, our favorite places in the Bible or places in the Bible that affirm who we are already are, but we're also exposed to, the, to the God's Word in a way where it reads us. And it further exposes us for who we are and where we've yet to be conformed to the image of Christ. So if you're new here, that's how we open God's Word on Sunday morning. Uh, right now we're working through a series entitled Letters to the Church uh, for the whole year. And we're in the leg of the series where we're going through the book of Romans, which was originally a letter written to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul. And we have made it to chapter 10. Now, if you've been here for the whole series, uh, it's been pretty thick so far. Paul has, in the first nine chapters, walked us through some really thick Uh, theological concepts and some deep understandings of what we truly mean when we say that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And so in chapter 10, what Paul does, I'm so thankful for, is he slows down for a minute and just very simply overviews the process of salvation for all who would believe. And so it's, to be honest with you, when I was a young Christian Christian, I would try to read the, the book of Romans, and I would make it through the first nine chapters, uh, oftentimes not even understanding what I read, to make it to chapter 10, and, and I finally would get what Paul was getting at. And so we're going to look at chapter 10 together today uh, in that light. And, uh, and so we're going to start in verse 1. Now, as we get ready to start uh, this, this chapter, I want to talk about two things that compete with the gospel in our lives In particular, what I mean in particular is from our culture, okay? So two things that I think compete with our understanding and our trust of the gospel in our lives. One is, as humans, we are inherently driven to make things more complex than they actually are. Okay, this is true of of anything in life, but especially faith and religion, you can look at Christianity from any denominational angle, and you can find unnecessary complexity where we build systems into the faith, where we can measure it, and we can uh manage it, and we can see it, and we can understand it. And, and so you see this historically, even before Christ walked on the earth, that man was notorious for, for building up these systems in an effort to get to God, okay? And so... Along with that, then, I think in our current culture, we have a very watered down, weak, shallow version of the idea and concept of faith itself. To the point where, when the gospel is expressed in our culture, oftentimes the response from a non believer is that just sounds too simple. On one hand, it's true, it is that simple. But oftentimes what I find if you ask questions is this. You'll find responses like this. So you mean I can just do whatever I want as long as I check in with God every now and then and say, hey, cover this with your blood, I'm good? And so what that tells me is that that person then has a very weak understanding, a very watered-down understanding of the concept of faith itself. You see, in our culture, faith is, is, is our Strong-willed belief in, in almost anything. So we, we summons up an idea of what we think should be or what we want to happen, and so we say, "Well, I just I'm just I refuse to not believe. I'm going to believe it's going to happen." But that's not how the Bible teaches faith. I think Peter walking on water is a fantastic example of faith. You see, Jesus invited Peter to step out of the boat onto water, right? And we, if you're familiar with that story, at first he succeeds, and then he takes his eyes off of Christ and begins to fail. So what didn't happen was Peter out in the water with his his fellow disciples saying to one another, I wonder if Jesus would let us walk on water. See, they didn't come up with that on their own initiative. Jesus extended the invitation, and Peter stepped out on Jesus' invitation to believe Jesus had his word, and that's what we call faith. Not simply just dreaming up something that we want to happen and calling it faith. We, uh, We oftentimes... Um, we'll approach this this idea of faith more like superstition in our culture. If we do this this way, we say it this way, then somehow God's going to be manipulated to do what we want him to do. But the faith of the Bible is a faith rooted in substance, the substance of what God himself proclaims, the invitations of God for us to follow. Now we're going to talk about faith as we move through chapter 10. It's a significant component. But here's where we begin in verse 1. Brothers... Paul writes, Romans 10, chapter 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. The them is the nation of Israel. He's a fellow Jew. He just finished chapter 9 talking about how Israel is part of God's redemptive plan. So that's the them. So he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's what I'm praying for. My fellow Jews, my fellow Israelite nation, that they would be saved. Verse 2, for I bear them witness, I can testify on their behalf, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. We'll come back to that in just a minute. For being ignorant of all righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who, what? Believes. Now, so much has been expressed here. To, to fully grasp what I think Paul is getting at here, I have to go back to chapter 9 for just a minute. In chapter 9, as Paul talks about the role of Israel in God's redemptive plan, he, towards the end, in verses 25 and 26, he quotes the Old Testament, Okay, which was the very word that they had. They had those scriptures, the Jews. And so he quotes scriptures that they had access to, and more than that, most of them had it memorized. I mean, he goes right to Hosea. Hosea was a pretty popular uh, Old Testament book that the Israelites were very familiar with. Okay? And so here's what he does. So Hosea, through the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, God illustrates this beautiful relationship that we have with him as a loving father and as a loving husband. God comes to the prophet Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to go into the red light district and choose for yourself a wife out of prostitution. So he does. Her name's Gomer. Brings her back to his house. They have three children. They have a son first, Jezreel. The second child is a daughter. God says, call her no mercy. What a great name for a little girl, right? Just asking for trouble, no mercy. And then the third child is a son. Call your son, not my people. And through this unfolding story of Hosea, God reveals some beautiful things about his character and about his love for us as you watch the story unfold. And uh, and Paul quotes this in chapter 9, part of this story. Look at what Paul quotes. Starting in verse 25, he says, As indeed he, being God, says in Hosea, and then he quotes, uh, first he quotes chapter 1, verse 10 of Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So he's talking about the the child, the son, not my people. And he's talking about this unfaithful woman who is a prostitute, who is unfaithful, not his beloved. Call her beloved. Verse 26 then, he continues to quote Hosea Hosea chapter 2, 23, and he says, And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now let me read from you, from Hosea, the fullness of what Paul was referring to. So if you go back to Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, God reminds Hosea of the promise he made to Abraham that his children will be, uh, like his descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the sand, At the seashore. And so he begins here. Verse 10. Yet the number of children of Israel. Shall be like the sand of the sea. Restating a promise that God has made. Then he says. Which cannot be measured or numbered. And In the place where it was said to them. You are not my people. Does that sound familiar? Paul just quoted that. It shall be said to them. Children of the living God. While the first name given to the youngest child. Was not my people. God is saying. The redemptive story will change his name. And just like. Hosea's son's name changed from not my people to now my, my child, so it would be for us. And then from Hosea chapter 2, again from the Old Testament, 23, the second part of chapter 23 in Hosea 2, says this I will have mercy on no mercy. That's what he says to Hosea. Your daughter, who you name no mercy, I will have mercy on her. Reflecting what? That those of us whose lives are steeped in sin, who don't deserve mercy through God's redemptive story would be shown mercy. And he goes on to say, I will say to not my people, what a name for a kid, I'll say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say back to me, you are my God. Now, here's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 10. He says, My desires for the people who knew all that information, who had the whole Old Testament memorized, my desires that they would be saved. And then he goes on to say, I can testify. They are zealous for God, but not according to, remember what it said? Knowledge. What an interesting word. You see, we see the word knowledge and we immediately think information. That's not what he's getting at here. The Jews had information. They had more information than the Gentiles did when it comes to the redemptive plan of God. They had the whole Old Testament. So it wasn't just access to information. So here's what we understand. Along with the, the beautiful redemptive plan of God in Hosea unfolding, we see another theme unfold in the prophet of Hosea. It's mentioned six times, this idea of knowing God or having the knowledge of God. It's mentioned six times in the prophet Hosea, okay? Very similar to what he just said here, right? Not according to knowledge or knowing him. Well, here's what draws it all together for me. This Hebrew word that, trends, that we uh, interpret into the word knowledge is the same word used in Genesis 4 when Adam knew his wife Eve as she conceived and bore him a son Seth. You see, it's not just this idea of information. It's a very intimate knowing between two people. And so what Paul is saying is that the Israelite nation had all the information and they were zealous for God, but not according to this kind of knowledge, where they knew him like Hosea knew Gomer and like God knows us. See, this is what he wants. This is what he's praying for. I'm praying this for my people, that they would come to know God this way. You See, I think it's possible for us to have a bulk of information about God and not know him. Unfortunately, I think it's true of even modern-day Christianity, especially with um, how excited we get about apologetics. Not knocking apologetics can be a fantastic part of understanding this uh, this understanding of our faith apologetically or in a way that makes sense. However, if we're not careful, we will over-rationalize the faith into a system that eliminates the concept of faith altogether. You see, while it's fantastic, I would never encourage a Christian to check their their brains at the door when they step into the room or step into God's word. At some point, for it to be true Christianity, we have to step beyond what makes sense to us and step onto a promise from God that has substance. That's what faith is. And so Paul would say, they had all kinds of information about God, but they they didn't know God that way. The way that A man knows his wife, and a wife knows her husband. And So he says, not according to knowledge. Now, verse 3. I'll I'll admit this about um, my generation, though I don't think it was really my generation that started it. It was those of you who were kicking it in the 60s. Um, I'm a a product. I'm a Gen Xer, so the baby boomers, you started. I'm blaming it on you. Um, But there's been this significant moral shift in American culture, by and large, um, to the point where I would say this. Um, Our culture today has traded the desire to be righteous for the right to be comfortable. And I think if you just study um, literature and philosophy from the mid-20th century and you compare it to what's happening today, you can see a significant shift from a desire to be righteous toward the right to be comfortable. And so the idea of being righteous, being right before God, isn't necessarily a wholesale value that our culture aspires to. Right? You might argue that there was a time in American culture where that was true, where the idea of being righteous, pursuing holiness, was actually a, a virtue and a value that the culture by and large um, had, had, had embraced. Now, we can talk about all the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the fallout that came right, from being a hypermoral society. I'm not in any way saying that, but somewhere along the way, we lost this idea and this ambition that righteousness is something that we should strive for. And so what Paul says next in verse 3 is this. For being, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Were they ignorant of righteousness in general? No. And seeking to establish their own, meaning their own righteousness, their own right way to God. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not the end of righteousness. The end of the law is a way to righteousness. So two ways to be right with God, according to this opening from Paul. One, and he's going to express it here and again, to be right with God morally means to live perfectly moral and to begin to climb the ladder of moral success towards God. And as long as you don't miss a rung, you can make it there. He says that the Israelite nation, they sought to build their own righteousness to God and completely missed the righteousness that comes by what? By faith. See, see, righteousness is still to be desired, to be pursued, to be wanted. But one is provided by the work of Christ on the cross, and the other one right, is rooted in your ability to make yourself right with God. And that's where Paul says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's interesting because Jesus makes a similar observation about the nation of Israel. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, he was talking to them about how well they knew the Old Testament and the scriptures. And Jesus says in 39 of John 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So on one part, your motive is right. right? You're pursuing righteousness through the scriptures. But the problem is, as Jesus says in the rest of that verse... And it is they who bear witness about me. So in your pursuit of information, your pursuit of being right with God, you missed the way to be right with God. You see where that is very similar to the church culture of today even? Where if we're not careful, we'll make Christianity into a moral deism, this this moral ethical ladder to climb to impress God and to earn favor with God and ultimately make our way to God. And as soon as we take a step on that ladder, we're taking a step away from the cross to say, I'll do this on my own. Look at what, uh, where Paul goes next. If you're taking notes, therefore my salvation is based on believing, but not just believing anything, right? Not just summoning up some idea of what I want to believe in, but truly believing in something. My salvation is based on believing the knowledge of the gospel Over the wisdom of our culture or what makes sense to me. At some point, the gospel is going to invite you to step away from the wisdom of your culture. Whether you're a baby boomer, a Gen Xer, a Gen Y, whatever the new generation is. At some point, faith is going to call you to step out of the wisdom of your culture. Out of what necessarily makes sense to you. And to believe God on his word and his word alone. Whether you're 14 or you're 60 in this room. That's what faith is, okay? My salvation is based on believing the knowledge of the gospel over wisdom of the culture or what makes sense to me. Now look at what um, Paul does next. He's going to refer to Moses in in verse 5. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So he goes back to what he was talking about, how the Jews have tried to build their own way to God. It's the way of Moses, this righteousness based on the law. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall what? Live by them. If you're gonna go that route, you have to go that route all the way, perfectly. You have to live by that code perfectly. Now, we already know there's a problem with that, right? Everybody in the room? At least for us, right? We understand that we're not gonna make that ladder. We might hit a rung or two here and there, but for the most part, we're gonna miss that. But to make it even more difficult, Jesus, in his teaching at the Sermon on the Mount, kicks that ladder, if you will, out from underneath us when he says what? You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if a man has looked lustfully upon a woman, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Whoa. What does he say about murder? You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, right, if you have said in your heart, I hate you to your brother, you've already committed Murder. So what is Jesus saying? Even this idea that you could catch a rung or two here and there on the moral ladder, even that isn't true. And so Paul reminds us that this is the righteousness Moses was telling us about. If you're going to make it that way, you've got to live by it perfectly. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says something. Okay, now he's going to begin quoting Deuteronomy here, just Old Testament. Um, it's, it's one of the books that teaches us the expression of the law. So he's diving right into the heart of the law as he quotes the Old Testament now. And he says this, this is what a righteousness by faith says. Do not say in your heart, This is righteousness by faith says, don't say this in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. So you hear what he's saying? So for the person who's who's living by a righteousness on their own, apart from faith, would say, here's how I'm going to get to heaven. Here's how I'm going to get to Christ. And when they see Christ in the grave, they say, here's how I'm going to get to him. And Paul reminds us, God initiated that. It was God who sent his son from his sovereign, glorious throne to walk among us on earth. We didn't make it to heaven. Heaven made his way to us. And when Christ took our sins upon himself at the cross and took them to the grave, we didn't have to go get him and resuscitate him and bring him back to life. He did that by his own power. Therefore, in both cases, we did nothing. And the righteousness by faith would never say, here's how you get to heaven. Here's how you get to Christ. Except for and apart from trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Now, when you continue moving forward as we will, you're going to see some things. I want to show you something from Hebrews 11 then. Um, Hebrews 11 pulls out the characters, the men and women of the Old Testament, and explains how they were made righteous. And it really reveals a lot about what it truly means to believe. Okay, Like I mentioned earlier, I think we've got a real weak definition, a watered-down idea of what faith looks like. And so the author of Hebrews in 11 just blows it up with example after example after example of how men and women were made righteous by faith. I'm going to give you a few examples. I'm not going to go verse by verse. I'm going to start in 4 and then skip to 7. So by faith, Abel. You remember Cain and Abel? Cain killed Abel. Remember what it was over? God accepted Abel's sacrifice. Okay? So, by faith, this is verse four, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Ultimately, God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. Now, what made God, what God gave God pleasure in Abel's sacrifice? We read it right here. It was the fact that it was offered in faith, not the substance of it, not because he gave more money, right? But because he believed. And his sacrifice came out of what he believed. Continue going forward. Look at verse 7. Even Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, he was warned. So Noah didn't just go out on a whim and go, you know what? I want to build a boat. I think if I build a boat, God will flood the earth. God said, I'm going to flood the earth. Noah believed God. And therefore, what? He built the ark. Even though the storm and the flood was unseen. In reverent fear, Constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he commended the world and became, or con, excuse me, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? Faith. See, building the ark isn't what made Noah righteous. Believing God is what made him righteous, therefore, he built the ark. You're gonna begin to see the, the difference here. It's the difference between roots of a tree and the fruit of a tree. If you think of it this way, faith is the roots, righteousness is the fruit. And if we're not careful, we'll forsake the whole tree and just go after the fruit. And what happens is we realize that we're not tall enough to reach it, so then we pull on a religious facade and we act more moral than we are, right? We act like we've made it up the ladder higher than we actually have because we realize that our system has failed us completely. You see, Noah's faith was the root of what he did. Because he believed, he therefore built the ark. Example after example, even Abraham and Sarah are included here. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. I always think of Abraham when I think about faith. What did God say to him? Abraham, get your stuff and go to the land that I will show you. So, what was the tangible promise of God? Go. Go. And I'm going to show you something. Did he know where he was going? No. So by faith, he stepped out beyond what made sense to his culture, probably to even to his family, left his father's household, packed up his stuff, and says, Sarah, let's go. Did he know exactly where he was going? No, but he knew he needed to go. See where faith compelled him forward? So by faith, he did this. Look at what he says about Abraham. This is the rest of verse 8. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, his son, and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. Verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Stop right there. If we're not careful, we'll think that Abraham's hope was in Jerusalem. It wasn't. More than a geographical setting up of the nation of Israel, Abraham was longing for something else. And that's why he followed God's command and believed him. This is what he was looking for. Heirs of the same. Verse 10. He was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is who? God. See, Abraham wasn't simply just trusting in the land of fruit and honey that was going to be easy. Right, which ultimately God planted Abraham in the nation, the nation of Israel, and from there, right, the nation. This is where the nation began to grow once it it moved outside of Egyptian slavery. But geographically is not necessarily what Abraham was longing for. He was longing to a city that was his foundations were built by God, and so therefore, when God said go, what did he say? Okay, I don't necessarily know where we're going on this earthly journey, but I ultimately know what I'm longing for, so I'm going to go. Can you imagine his wife? Where are we going, sweetheart? I don't know. Why are we going? Because God said, "Okay." Where do you say we're going to? I don't know. At some point, you just make something up, right? Just to shut her up. Like, I'm just kidding. But right, this is, this exposes this idea of faith, Men, This is oftentimes how we lead our own homes. You sit down with your wife, and you say, "The Lord has convicted me of this," and they say, "Well, what does that mean? I don't fully know." But I just know this is what the Lord is speaking to me. This is what I'm hearing in his word and what, what I'm hearing when I pray. And, and I feel like he's leading us in, in this direction. And, and ladies, not that he doesn't speak to you that way, but when your husbands that's a very scary thing to follow. So we're going to end up in huts in Africa? What does this mean? I don't know. We, we may. I'm not hearing that now. We may. All I know is right now, God has called us to step out beyond what makes sense, what we're comfortable with, and trust him. And so Abraham serves as an example. And then his wife, Sarah, okay, Sarah wasn't really on board fully at first, even laughed when, when, right, when she heard that God was going to give her a son, uh, give her a child. Well, she was barren. But look at what Hebrews eleven eleven says about her. By faith, Sarah res- herself received power to conceive. Now, was this Sarah alone, mourning the fact that she was barren, thinking, you know what, if I just believe enough, God will give me a child? No, God initiated and told her, you're gonna have a child, so she believed him. By faith, faith, Sarah um, herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. What a beautiful example of faith. God spoke, ultimately, Sarah believed. And through that faith, God caused her to conceive. Look at verse 13, summing up what we've read so far in chapter 11. These all died in faith. What does that mean? He explains, not having received the things promised. Every one of those examples died in faith. Trusting God, believing God. God is the one who led. I mean, right? Can you, can you imagine being early on in the, in the lineage of this promise? There were some really weird things that happened. Sons getting sold into slavery. Nations in Famine ended up in in, ultimately in, in a whole nation of Israel. The heirs of this promise end up in slavery themselves going, wait a second, this whole following God thing, I mean, really? I mean, if God is good, why is he letting this happen, right? I mean, God made us a promise. We must have somewhere, somebody messed this up for us. Here we are, 400 years of slavery. But God was faithful to keep his promise. Faith means following God, trusting God, right, the root is faith that begins to produce a compelling outward result that we call fruit. Faith is, if you're taking notes, the only way I can become righteous and have a relationship with God. By faith alone. Through, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Can I be considered righteous before God and have a relationship with him? Now, going to go forward now from here to more full, a more full understanding of what faith is and what it looks like. Verse 8. So what does it say? So a, a righteousness, a faith that leads to righteousness doesn't say you can make your way to God on your own. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What word? That is the word of faith that we proclaim, the gospel. So what Paul is going to do here now is he's going to draw a really close connection between what we believe in our hearts and what we confess with our mouth. You already begin to see it here in verse 8, right? The word is near you, it is in your mouth, and it is in your heart. Now, this idea of the close connection between what is going on in our hearts and what is coming out of our mouths is not a new concept in the scriptures. Jesus himself talked a lot about that. Matter of fact, in Luke 6, here's an example. Um, Jesus uses the idea of trees as a metaphor or a parable, if you will, to illustrate um, this truth that whatever we have in our hearts will come out of our mouths. Now, here's what he says in Luke 6. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit. It's not possible. Nor, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit. Bad tree will produce what? Bad fruit, good tree, good fruit. Then he goes on to say, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. Right? So you don't go up to a peach tree and get frustrated and ask the question, why aren't you producing cherries? Because it's a peach tree. Right? The good person then, here's the conclusion, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth what? Speaks. Now, the gospel writer Matthew records this this same uh, teaching from Jesus and captured one more phrase here. So in Matthew 12 37, we got this additional phrase, For by your words you will be justified, and and by your words you will be condemned. And Paul's going to quote that. He's going to quote Jesus here in just a minute. So this close connection between what's stirring in my heart and what comes out of my mouth. What What is Paul getting at? What is Jesus getting at? The mouth reveals what the heart believes. Every time. And so you can't disconnect the idea when it comes to faith that it's simply just believing something in your mind. That's why we're going here. Believe in your heart, speak with your mouth. Why? Because that's the kind of faith that saves you. A faith that compels you forward. It includes trusting Right. It it includes following. It includes surrendering. And this close connection between what we believe in our heart and what comes out of our mouth. Now look at what Paul's going to say next in Romans 10, starting in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, it's a very important word here, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. So what Paul is doing here and what Jesus was doing is drawing a a clear understanding of the difference between simply saying things with your mouth or simply believing things in your heart. Let's talk about that. What do we call it when we just say things with our mouth that we don't believe in our heart? We call it lip service, right? Lip service. Say things that you don't truly believe. I mean, in the core of your being, believe. You say it either because you feel like you're gonna get the response you want or because that's what you're supposed to say. It's, it's just lip service if you don't truly believe it, right? And this, is, uh, this is one of the issues that, that the culture that we live in today, the, um, the non-believing culture has with the church. They look at us and they see a lot of lip service. They hear us sing our songs about how awesome Jesus is and how awesome it is to lay down our lives for him and how awesome it is to, to, to give our lives up for other people and for him and to follow. They hear us sing these things, right? But oftentimes it looks like, And and to their credit, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, but it it looks like lip service. So we don't just get to walk around confessing, right, Jesus is Lord. Put on the t-shirt, I'm good to go. However, it's not simply just believing, right, in our hearts. It's, It's together, this idea of believing and confessing. Because he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at what he says next. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Are we saved by works? No, we're saved by faith, and that faith serves as a root that will grow and begin to produce works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by a faith that compels us to works. I love where um, Paul We were here a couple weeks ago in this series in Romans 6 and 7 and 8, first part of 8. Paul talks about our struggle with sin. He talks about his own struggle with sin. And in chapter 7, we didn't spend a lot of time here, but but Paul says something remarkably. um, There's something drastically different about the way he sees the law of God as as a Christ follower now. Before Paul followed Christ, he saw the law as a curse. All the law was there to do was to condemn you and show you where you didn't measure up and were wrong. And then he goes through this spill about how he's wrestling and I keep doing what I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. But he ends that now with saying, this is what's different inside me now. I now see the law of God as something beautiful to pursue. Like I now see righteousness as something I want. I long for it. I want to, I want to strive for it. I don't work for it to make God like me better, but I strive for it because God has already loved me. I don't don't seek to be a moral person that that God might eventually let me into heaven because God has already promised me that position. Now I see holiness as something that's good and right and I chase after it. I don't always get it. Sometimes I don't do the things I want to do and sometimes I do the things I don't want to do. But here's what's different. I now see the law of God is beautiful and life-giving and righteousness is is a virtue to pursue. See, there's a, there must be a close connection between what we say we believe in here and what's coming out of our lives. Otherwise, it's just lip service. And, and let's, just, let's just be fair. Like An expression of your faith can come out in some of the most subtle ways, okay? This is what I don't mean. Everybody needs to go home and pack your bags and let's all buy air tickets to Africa. Maybe somebody needs to do that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this. Simply standing up and singing in here could be a true expression Of your faith. I hope it is actually. (laughs) But for, for some of us, it's easy to stand and sing, right? We mean what we're saying, but it's not hard. Not a whole lot of trust involved. Some of you stand to sing and it's difficult. You're not comfortable. You wouldn't do it in any other context, but because you believe it's true, you do it anyway. That could be an expression of true faith. Some of you may be challenged in other areas, maybe in generosity. And so, some people just love giving stuff away. They ain't in trouble being generous. Probably because they're just too lazy to be good stewards, but that's me. But some of us really struggle to let go of things. And we know God's calling us to help the poor. We know that God's calling us to be generous with our things and to give. And, and maybe that's you. And so, for you, right, that step forward is to say, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I, feel, I know this is right. So, God's calling me to do it. It's not easy. It's not comfortable for me, but I'm going to trust God and I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tithe, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go send money to help this mission organization. I'm gonna, ultimately, I'm going to begin letting go of things here on earth. And that's a faith move for you. You could just continue on example after example, but the point is not that you follow some perfect system of religion, but that where God is challenging you through his word, through his Holy Spirit in you, and he calls you forward, you're will, even if you're not comfortable, you're willing to step forward. That's trusting. Okay, God, I'm trusting you. I'm letting go of the things that I'm comfortable with, the things that, um, that I can control, and I'm going to follow you wherever you lead me. This is a fun conversation for married Christians to have when maybe a husband says to the wife, hey, we need to talk. Um, the Lord has really convicted me of some things. He's showing me some things in his word, and I really feel like um, he's calling us in a specific direction. And you wives are awesome because you want to know all the details. Right? What do you mean by that? What does that look like for us? And it's hard, isn't it, man? I don't fully know what it looks like. <laughs> I just know he's calling us forward. What does that mean for us? Are we going well, to have to sell? What, 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 where, 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 where do we got? I, I don't know. But I know he's calling us forward. Genuine faith in Christ is something I believe in my heart that leads me to confess with my mouth. Um Verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who what? Call on him. So he started with belief and he ends with call. Again, not separating the two. That if we truly believe, like if we truly believe. This is a, an expression we see even in, in Exodus Um, three and four, the Israelites are in in bondage and slavery, but they had been calling out to God, and God says to them, I I, I see your suffering, I hear your cry for mercy, and I know what you're going through, and God responded. But just think about that. What led to them calling out? They believed there was a God who, who heard and a God who loved, right? Ultimately, the calling out was an expression of what they believed was true. Everyone who believes and everyone who calls will be Saved. Let's go ahead and look at 14 through 17 is where we're going to end. And we're going to see how this process now works. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to explain to us in very simple terms how individual salvation fits in the whole redemptive plan and how the gospel started at the resurrection and has headed its, ways, its way out to the ends of the earth. Okay, So here's what he says in verse 14 then. So if this is all true, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, right? If you call on somebody you haven't believed, that's just lip service. It starts with belief, right? How can they call on someone in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? Very simple, right? Very simple. Thank you, Paul, for making it simple. But look at what he says next. So how are they to hear without someone preaching or proclaiming or sharing the message? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Why is it beautiful? Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So just because the gospel is proclaimed doesn't mean everybody's going to magically believe. But look at verse 17. So faith comes from what? Hearing. Hearing anything? Right? I was just listening to this country song and it made me think this about God, and so I whoo stirred up my faith. I mean, maybe. I'm not dogging country music. That was just a bad example. You get it though, right? Like I was just skipping through a meadow and I saw a daisy, and it you know reminded me of how God is, or whatever. Like, no. Faith comes from hearing, but hearing something specific. Hearing what? The words of Christ. You see, I think our, our modern-day Christianity is more like skipping through the meadow, picking flowers and just believing whatever comes to mind and whatever feel good, feels good in that moment. The problem with that is we're so fickle, right? I mean, I, I eat one too many burritos from Taco Casa, and all of a sudden, right, the Holy Spirit's not moving anymore. Or It you was know, just so fickle, just the, the, the things that shift the way I feel. And this isn't a faith based on what we feel is right. It's a faith based on believing the specific Promises of God that when God calls you forward to trust, you do. Here's the process of the gospel moving from the resurrection to the ends of the earth. If you're taking notes, the gospel is first proclaimed, Acts 2. Peter steps up at Pentecost, proclaims the gospel. Several thousand people became Christians that day. What happened? Here's what happened. First, so the gospel is proclaimed, second, the gospel is heard. The gospel is heard. Third, the gospel is believed. And then what do we just read will happen if we truly believe it? The fourth thing is the gospel is confessed. Let me go through it again. The gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is heard. The gospel is believed. The gospel is confessed. You see what just happened when we confessed it? We just proclaimed it. That's how the gospel has moved from the resurrection to the ends of the earth. Let me say it this way, two different things. One, for many of us, we can remember times either in the distant past or maybe not so distant past where we were super excited about what God was doing in our hearts to the point where we just shared it all the time and everywhere. We've, we've come, maybe you've come in and out of seasons like that where like there are times in your life where like every conversation that you're in with anybody, you're trying to work the gospel in and what God's doing in. And, and then there have been other seasons where right you've been less excited about it, less Proactive about explaining the gospel. But here's what I believe has happened. as, As we truly believe, especially like when we first become Christians, something happens inside of us. This transformation begins to take place. It's a faith that's alive and it truly trusts God. What happens then? We can't help but talk about it, right? We can't help but share with people what God is doing in our lives. And ultimately, when we confess, we become proclaimers of the gospel. Now, this is why... Baptism is such an important part of your spiritual faith journey with Christ. Now, we had a baptism in the first service, and it was really cool how that worked out for that particular gentleman. He wrote his testimony out, and Brian Lamb read it. And here's what he said He talked about how he had pushed God away for so many years, and then recently had two different co workers who were inviting him to church and trying to share the gospel with him. And after several invitations, finally, he relented and, and, and came. He actually came to Solid Rock. And, and I wasn't preaching that day. Brian Lamb was preaching. And Brian Lamb preached the gospel. And, uh, and, and this gentleman responded and became a believer. And both of those co-workers were here today. I got to meet the one I didn't know. And both shared from their perspectives how one had sown and one had water. But ultimately, God caused the heart change and the life change. But here's what I said in the first service. Like, so I think that baptism should have a more significant position in our spiritual journeys than it tends to have. I want to be cautious, though. On one hand, there's nothing spiritual about this water. It's tap water, right? City of Fort Worth. It's barely fit to drink, okay? Barely fit to drink. So there's nothing spiritual about that water. But on the other hand, what is it? It is a public confession of what a person believes in their heart. That's why when the man was in here today, Brian Lamb asked him, do you believe that Jesus is the son of the living God? You know what he said? Yes. He was confessing with his mouth what his heart believed. Do you believe that Jesus has died for your sins? Yes. I believe that's true. Do you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? And this man said yes. Now, did those statements save him? No. No. The faith that caused him to say those statements is what saved him. He was just expressing outwardly what he already knew was true in his heart. He was confessing with his mouth what he already believed. I would encourage you, if you've been a Christian for a day or 10 years, however long, and you haven't been baptized, like that should be an important part of your spiritual journey. Jesus himself was baptized, but then he calls us to do the same, to confess publicly what we truly believe in our hearts. And if that's you today, there's a couple ways you could let us know that you're ready for that, or at least ready to have the conversation maybe. Um, in your Connect card, you could check that off and we'll get, get in contact with you. And there's also, um, back in the hospitality area, there's, um, there's just a, a little information guide on baptism just to give you more information, some scriptures to read, but ultimately the process of how you let us know that you're ready to have that conversation. I would be really excited to get, to get together with you and talk about that. Here's where I want to end today, though. As our worship team gets ready to come back up, our prayer partners will be down here as always at the front and the back. Um, for the person who's here today says, who says, you know what? I mean, at best, I've been a lip service Christian. I'm ready to believe. Like to believe to the point where I trust and I'm willing to step forward. If that's you today, I'm going to pray that you would come to Christ today and i'm not going to ask you to repeat a prayer after me i want you to express it in your own words to god the father you could stay where you're seated and just spend some time praying don't you don't have to stand and sing okay permission just stay seated if you want to and just pray in your own heart reach out to god for the first time today and say you know what i truly believe i truly i want i want to believe with the faith of abraham the faith of noah the faith of i want to believe you like that god A faith that leaves me room to fumble it around and and get it right sometimes and wrong sometimes but ultimately leads me forward. Um, Our prayer partners obviously will be here and they would love to talk more with you about that or just pray with you um, just to help you work through that process of becoming a Christian today. Here's what I'm going to ask of you. If you make that decision today, this could be your first day in church or your thousandth day in church, I want you to share it with somebody. Okay? I want you to share it with somebody, somebody who brought you, somebody on staff. Let somebody know the decision you've made in your heart. Okay? Now I'm going to pray that that happens now, and then our band's going to come up and lead us now as we respond. Let's get ready to pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this beautiful and profound and yet very simple gospel And thank you today for challenging my own heart, God, that oftentimes what I call faith is not even faith. And so you've called us today, you've reminded us today that to be a people of faith, we must trust and believe your promises, God. And I pray today for any person here who does not know you the way that Adam knew Eve, the way that Hosea knew Gomer, the way that... God, you know us. If anybody doesn't know you that way, with that kind of knowledge, I pray today would be the day, God, that they would reach out to you in faith and say simply, I trust the work of Christ on the cross for my sins and I'm trusting in that and that alone for my salvation. Father, now I pray for any person here who doesn't know you, that that, God, would be our response. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would consume this place, More importantly, you would consume our hearts. You would stir us up. You would convict us where we need to be convicted. God, reveal to us the places in our life that have yet to be conformed to the image of Christ. God, not to shame us, but to call us forward towards righteousness and holiness, God. Father, we love you. We give you our hearts. We give you this time. Now move among us.